What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on the Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Black on the Air. This is Larry Wilmore, of course. I know I always say this, but I never know whether it's right to say thanks for tuning in or choosing the pod. I don't know how it works. I'm too old school to really... Uh... Don't touch that dial, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now, I am I have limited time today, uh, so I'm not going to be doing my normal intro. Instead, we're going to get right to our special guest, and you kind of hear him talking right now, but someone I've wanted to talk to for a while. He's, you know, author of many books, a New York Times contributor, and he's also a linguistics professor at Columbia University. Uh, and today we're going to discuss his book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. John McWhorter, welcome to Black on the Air. John, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Larry. It's great to meet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've kind of crossed paths in different ways. We've both been on Bill Maher's show. That for example. Is. Think you a lot more than me, but... Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that type of thing. But I wanted to have you on. I promised the audience that... I, I really want to have all of the discussions about the things we're going through, you know, especially when they're coming from different points of view, which I really am a firm believer in. I, I love having discussion. I'm not I'm never threatened by disagreement. I enjoy disagreement, you know, and I feel like we're in an age of, you know, uh, disagreeable disagreement now, you know, and mm -hmm. it's uh, it seems very toxic to me where we can't even discuss things from different points of view without, you know, being arrested for, for thinking mm -hmm. a certain way. Called a moral pervert on social media. That's right. Yeah. yeah all kinds of things, you know, yeah. and, uh, but I, I think it is important whether you agree or disagree with something to at least expand your thinking about things, you know, look at things a different way. It's something I've always done just to give you a quick, thing of my evolution. I never really considered myself any political ideology growing up, right or left. Those things had really no meaning to me. You know, I was into comedy and theater and that sort of thing. I grew up in the 60s, a little, a few years before you, um, 61, I think you're 65, 66, something like that. Yeah, a little, little younger. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, 
that stuff was all around me, the movements and everything. But to me, they were always, I would call them, I saw it as a human movement, you mm-hmm. know, and they kind of morphed into political movements, which I believe is a little different, you know, where you're, mm-hmm. you, it's enmeshed in political sides rather than having yeah. hum, human takes on things. And I think that's been the biggest evolution that I've seen. And uh, I kind of first had my awareness of political correctness in the early 90s and being a contrarian, I was like, what the hell's going on? You know, and I, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole on the right and really read a lot of people who were coming from the right during that period. Your uh, Shelby. I was doing that. Shelby Steele. All that kind of stuff. Uh, that's right. You know, all the people. And noticing that those people weren't crazy. Exactly. They weren't crazy. Interesting points of view. Uh, Many of them were the things my parents' generation and those people presented, how they presented race relations. Exactly. I felt it was more generational thinking. I always thought with Shelby Steele stuff, for example, that nobody would have thought this was controversial 30 or 40 years ago. Not at all. Not at all. And it it was more generational formulations, I guess, in how people dealt with things like racism. It, it, racism, the fight against racism when I was growing up was always a practical fight against bad actions, you know, mm-hmm. but it was mm-hmm. never an ideological fight against thought, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, the idea that we're going to police what you think, and if you give any evidence of thinking the wrong way, we're going to treat you the way we would treat you if you did a racist thing. Yeah, the new yeah, thing yeah. is that that's how you do it, that it's yes. about what your thoughts are. Yeah, Of course, it's more complex than that. And of course, there in any of these things, there's a lot of truths that are mixed in there. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it becomes very complicated. And that's why I think it's good to have the discussions, because it is complicated. I don't think it is black and white, you know, so to speak, or whatever. No. So that's why. And there you go. That's my short, short introduction, why I wanted to talk to you about some of these things. Jim. You set it up perfectly, because what it is is first it's don't do racist things and i don't right. think anybody has any problem with that yes. then when let's you, start when with that how about that yeah. don't burn across don't you, do something racist yeah. don't call somebody a name <laughs> then i think when you and me are growing up the new thing is all right what are you thinking like right. not only not only you know have black neighbors but do you do you like them Who now, even you? that was yeah. a stretch but i yeah. think that was a moral advance i think that made sense i grew up watching that now there's this new thing, which isn't just what are you thinking, but how do you feel about being complicit in a society where racism 50 years ago created today's situation? Don't you feel exquisitely guilty? And if you don't, you are as bad as Archie Bunker. I think that pushes it too far. That's the problem. And it feels to be a multi-pronged attack because it's it's that, but it's also policing language in a hypersensitive manner, too, which... exactly. Uh, whether you misspeak about something or you're clumsy about something or not even clumsy, you present something very straightforwardly and yep. very earnestly, like just mm-hmm. a, a question about some, just questioning something, not even having an opinion, questioning something can just spark accusations that you're not on the right side of history or that type of thing. Yeah, you have this kind of person. What they do is they tweet isn't it problematic that such and such said something? But the truth is, 
that person is as if they're in religious garb, sitting up on some dais and deciding you have blasphemed. That's what they mean by the problematic. And all it is is some little thing you said. And I think it's getting to the point where if you are, I hate to sound old man, if you're 35 okay. or younger, I don't think you, you have a way of remembering that at a time that felt very modern to us about 10 minutes ago, grown up, enlightened people could say these things without their careers being threatened. I don't think these people realize that there's something new or their character. Yeah. 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 It just it wasn't that way. It scares me because I don't think it's fair. And I think you posited in your book, too, that the beginnings, I'll call it wokeism for want of a better term, arguably started with the politically correct movement of the early 90s. Is that pretty much how you see it? That's as well? where it begins. And um, I think you and I both remember that politically correct became a slur. And then yes. <laughs> in the 2000 aughts and the early 2000 teens, woke replaced what politically correct once had been which was a compliment. And lately, woke has become what PC had become by the late 90s. Yeah, we're just, we're late 80s. I always feel the real problem is when white people get a hold of a word that black people start, it just leads to all kinds of trouble. <laughs> right. You <laughs> never know what's going to happen to it. Once white people started saying unfleek, it was all over, John. It was just all over. You could not say it anymore. <laughs> and notice that word is now gone. Exactly. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone, you know. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, um, how did... How do you think language became such a big player in victimization? You know what? I hate to say this, but I think part of it is that it lends itself to being discussed on Twitter. And it's easy. If you want to do social justice, then there's one thing you can do, which is to go out into the world, knock on doors, try to get people to vote, run for minor local offices. In other words, you have to do the kind of work that old time right. civil rights leaders did. Another thing you can right. do is listen to somebody say the word Negro. Notice I didn't say the N-word, Negro. Listen to somebody say Negro. Listen to somebody put something in a certain way and decide that it's problematic and everybody gets to demonstrate to one another that they understand that racism exists. The problem is that's easier and it's kind of more fun. I think people mm -hmm. are settling for entertaining one another rather than doing the real work of changing the world. And language can be easy. Listening to people's words and saying you shouldn't have said mm -hmm. that. People worked harder on this sort of thing 40, 50 years ago. And that's it's created our lives. I really think you and me, the lives we've led is based on real work people did. And there are people today who think that they're continuing that legacy by pretending that Negro is a slur and, you know, and, and on and on. I think it's not continuing what our ancestors did. I want us to get back to the real work. Part of uh, the point of view of your book is you equate it to a religion. Mm-hmm. It is a religion. And I know that, that you're an atheist, so... I am. You know, yeah. par part of it could be your, let's be honest, your prejudice against religion, John. Frankly, kind of shows through I am. And, <laughs> and you know why? I'm going to say this here. People can smell that on me, that I have, a, I have a beef with it. Part of it is because sometimes it can be hard to be Black and an atheist. You know, it can put a barrier between you and people who you wish you could connect with more. This is the one time I've ever said this in public. It's not that I'm Sam Harris. You know, I have no mm -hmm. problem with Sam Harris, but it's that sure. because I don't believe it can put a barrier and it has in my life since I was about a teenager and not a conclusive one, but it gets in the way. So I get mad at it. That's part of it. I will openly admit that. Yeah. When did you when did you realize you were an atheist? Were your parents religious at all? Did you grow up in a religious house? Not especially. My father was Presbyterian and 
I don't think he really believed in God and Jesus, but it was a social thing. Mm -hmm. My mother wouldn't have admitted that she was an atheist, but I think she was. But she started Southern Baptist and then she made us Quakers when I was a teen. But, you know, Quakers are not that much into God. Quakers are into liberal and leftist politics. And oats. And oats. oats, (laughs) There's some oats. So we were black Quakers for about 10 minutes, but I I never really took them. Wow. You know, I knew I was an atheist at eight. And I remember having a huge argument with a, a black kid I went to camp with where I just said, God, there's no such thing as that. And he, how can you say that? And we actually got into a kind of a physical fight. And of course, I haven't gone through life having scenes like that, but it's that mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And so when people can smell in the book that he doesn't like Christianity, I respect it in many ways. But yeah, it's been frustrating in my life in a great many ways. And then I do see this new woke movement paralleling mm-hmm. that kind of thought. And I think, oh, no, more of it. I hate to put it that way. But yeah, that's how I that's how I feel. Well, there's atheism. There's a belief that there is no divine, I guess, being that rules the universe. But then there's what you might call anti-religion, which is more against the organized structure that kind of presents itself in a certain way in the world. And I feel this is more against religion than it is railing against a a divine thought, because I don't think there's a God in this religion, Mm -hmm. in this religious analogy. No, and a religion doesn't have to have a God. Religions generally have to have a devil. And that is what this religion has, because it's this, you know, this white hegemony. But <laughs> that's hilarious. There, there's a hell, but not a heaven. But not a not a heaven. It's a it's a religious way of thinking. What bothers me is that I don't want to. I want to make sure this isn't too clear for for the person in question. I remember talking to somebody when I was in my twenties, late twenties, about mm-hmm. religious faith. And, you know, we're mm-hmm. talking about all the logic of it. You know, like nobody walks on water. You understand that, right? There's no such thing as a talking snake, right? And finally, it just kept getting <laughs> to, you know, do you believe? And he kept saying, you have to have faith. You have to have faith. And I realized, mm-hmm. wow, logic stops here. I can see there's a way of thinking where you you decide that thinking isn't appropriate. That's what I think we see in the way a lot of people are thinking about race. And so, okay, you're going to decide that this is the one I think about this week. Negro is a slur. You're going to decide that nobody can read out things that Martin Luther King wrote. Okay, how does it follow that that's going to help black people who need help out in the real world? What, what What's the connection? Well, you know, I see no logic in that whatsoever, but I can tell I'm not supposed to think of it. I'm supposed to just accept that it makes sense to decide that Negro is the new slur. But I don't want to just accept it. If it doesn't make any logical sense, I get I get itchy. I get frustrated. Do you feel that way? That you, you get itchy if it doesn't make any sense? Well, I come at it from a slightly different point of view because I'm drawn to make fun of it more than anything <clears> else, <throat> you know, or <laughs> or make jokes about it or deconstruct it or throw it back in in its face, right. you know, and just see where it lands. Uh, John Oliver and I, when I was on The Daily Show, there was a councilman in New York who wanted to ban the N-word, you know, wanted to ban it. And to me, just the thought of banning language is silly anyway, you know. Never works. Uh, what does that even mean? Oh, we just tortured him. It was one of the <laughs> most fun. And it was a classic bit, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I am actually sitting there saying, I'm like, look, his name is Leroy. I said, Leroy, if you tell young people to not say nigger, you know, all day long, all they can do is go nigger, 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 nigger. And I said it for like, I said it for like two minutes straight without saying it. And it, was, it was just one of the funnest. Here's a guy who wants to ban this word, and I'm saying it in this interview like for two minutes straight. Nigga, nigga. And I took a breath. Nigga, 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 nigga. And he's just looking at me like, what are you talking about? But to me, 
I I find the deconstruction of things is where I get my oxygen, I guess. But I'm very interested in how people present it straightforward in a straightforward way too. But in terms of the religion, uh, it's interesting. Some people have made this analogy before, but it has been more of an analogy. But you're really saying, no, 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 this is really a religion. I'm not making an analogy. Like you're very firm about that. And you come up with the term the elect. So who are the elect, actually? Who are these people? The elect are not just the woke. It's not just that everybody we know who's woke is one of these people. The elect are the ones who think that their way of looking at the world is so sacred that if you don't agree with them, if you do something that stubs their toe, you deserve to lose your job. You deserve to be called a white supremacist on Twitter, for example. You are not fit for common society. It's one thing for those people to disagree with you. I remember that kind of person way back in the 80s. I started running up against this kind of person in my own work in linguistics in the late 90s. It used to be that they would you know, say terrible things to you and life would go on. Social media encourages it to get worse. Now it's not only do we disagree with you and not like you, but you should be stripped of your titles. You should be ridiculed in public at length. You should possibly lose your job. That's the elect, because those people really think that this is appropriate. They think that they see further than the rest of us. And it's a really specific thing. And it sounds so dry when you talk about it. For them, it's the world needs to center on battling differentials in power, especially ones where white people lead battle the power differential must be everything. Now, it used to be that we thought that was one of about 15 things you would think about. It is important. For them, it's the very center. And if you're not centering that, you can't just have it as one of 10 things. If you're not centering that, you are a moral reprobate. That's the elect. They don't put it that way, which is what makes it hard. But that is their feeling. You are problematic if you are not centering battling white power. And I don't think that's a view of the world that most of us agree with. Most of us think that you do want to battle power differentials, but this issue of making that the central goal of everything that we do in this short thing we call life, most of us don't think that way. They do. That's the elect. And they are represented disproportionately in academia and the media. And so it can seem like, for example, with Black people, it can seem like that's all of us because you know, most Black people in academia and the media do think that way. But I know that once you step outside of those two places, it's not the way most black people think. It's just that you don't hear from most of us. And so with woke racism, I think some people think I was writing an eccentric book. Like, here's what weird, nerdy, Urkel-esque me thinks. And this is my little <laughs> view. No, I was thinking this is what a lot of black people think. It's just that they don't usually write a book about it. And so I was just hoping it would get out there as that kind of statement. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think this is my whole thing about where politics got enmeshed. Because um, blacks tend to vote 90% Democratic. People think that blacks think monolithically, but no, that's really just how they express themselves politically. Exactly. Primarily. But uh, that's just how they pull pull that lever. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's mainly because we've been put in in different boxes and we've had no choice in order to to gain to make gains in the past. Mm -hmm. It used to be the Republican Party. In fact, I read a. Uh, 
uh, Whoopi Goldberg gave me this book. I'm not dropping names. Or <laughs> they used to have uh, like yearbooks, like the black yearbook type of thing. I can't remember what the name of it was. It would sum up everything that happened in that year for like prominent black people and that type of thing. And this was I didn't know there was a book like that. Okay. Oh, yeah. it's fascinating. They used to come out with these all the time. This one was from 1911. Like a Jet magazine, but more serious exactly. for the year. I was going to say Jet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It would list accomplishments and that types of things, you know. It also, here's what was fascinating. It would list like the lynchings that happened in that year, things like that. Who did this? Was was it the NAACP or the National Urban It League? may have been called the Negro Handbook. That may be that the sounds familiar. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not sure who put it together, but it was a common thing back then, you know, for black people to know what was going on, you know, in their community because we weren't represented, of course. But one of the, there was an essay in there that I found interesting and it was imploring black people to not put all their eggs in one political basket. But then it was the Republican Party. Exactly. And it was saying, and it was saying, look, we can't just rely on the Republican Party. And I thought this is fascinating because today it's the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, that's how things got done. It was for me, it was it always seemed like a practical thing of, of, of course, you know, the only way you can have any kind of political power is by having some kind of lever that people can actually feel. Yeah, I had a really, I what I think was a good conversation with Tavis Smiley about a month ago, where the one place where I still am finding myself asking questions is that I said that, Tavis, you have often said that you have to hold your leaders responsible. The idea mm-hmm. being, don't just let Democrats say, we're going to give you this and then not do it. And I asked him, so what do you mean by hold them responsible? I mean, to hold them responsible, don't you mean that we should vote for the other party instead so that we have real leverage? And he wouldn't go there. You say, you're not going to vote for Republicans, but I'm not sure what the holding responsible is if it isn't if it isn't that. I mean, I guess maybe you're going to vote for some other Democrat, but suppose no Democrat is doing what you asked for, which unfortunately is what many people would say happens. They say Democrats mm-hmm. take advantage of the black vote. Well, if so, aren't you supposed to spread it around? But unfortunately, and the Republicans don't make this any easier, especially lately. But I used to no. say 20 years ago, why don't you vote? I never did either. But I'd say, why don't you consider voting Republican? Because if the Republicans have par- policies like no child left behind, that didn't work. But 20 years ago, nobody knew how badly it was going to work. The faith-based and community initiatives, George W. Bush, of all people, has all these black ministers coming and consulting. Mm-hmm. I liked that because I was thinking this helps us as opposed to anything Al Gore and Hillary Clinton are thinking about. But no, you weren't allowed because Republicans are associated with racism. I thought that was very limiting. Now, these days, I don't think black people need to think too much about voting Republican myself. But it was different 10, 20 years ago, and it'll be different probably again. You know, I I think if General Powell had run in 2000 and had become president, I think you may have seen a shift because at that point, there was still a time for people to have an open mind about it and not necessarily ascribe certain things automatically to one side. But we kind of passed. Right. It's kind of past that. point. yeah, Republicans do not help themselves at all, especially the modern Republican Hopeless. Party Hopeless. has gone out of their way to to make that party hostile. To Alienate somebody. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very. Bizarre. It's a mood so, conversation I, these days. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. I'm yeah. kind of through with politics as any solution to anything culturally. I think let's use politics to hopefully solve things that government is supposed to work on. But the cultural fight, I think, needs to be more complicated and be more nuanced. You know, you also what's interesting is you make a comparison not just to religion, but you describe it. Uh, and I think this this to me kind of I found even more, I don't know, more interesting, but also interesting, but like to communism and that sort of thing um, or the way that segregation is thought where, and I'll use this, I'll quote this phrase, which I thought was great. And I think you were quoting someone where they believe in an idealized past, a fantastical future and an indelibly polluted present. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And I think what it does, it gives you an impossible present foe. I think is, is I, my nose, like when you're fighting white supremacy, it's different from fighting segregation Mm -hmm. because segregation has a tangible goal that you can see, you know, let black people sit at the counter, you know, or desegregate schools. Those are tangible. You can see even voting rights, that sort of thing. But white supremacy, way. so vague, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's the, this thing when that becomes the fight itself. Yeah, like, well, what are the? T- how do you fight that? What are the tools? And then people get to tell you what the rules are. And if you argue with them, then obviously you're for white supremacy. <laughs> you're part of the problem. Yeah. That's, that's one of the hardest things about this because yeah, there's a little book called um, the true believer by Eric Hoffer that school kids used to be made to read more than they are now. It was written back in the early fifties and it just describes all of these, frankly, fanatical movements. I, I don't mean to call today's elect fanatics. They aren't, but mm-hmm. you know, and this is, you know, Southern segregationists, this, all of it applies to certain strains of Islam today, where it always is about this present tense that is just hideous. And the problem with this is you see this with today's elect, white elect and black elect, in that good news isn't welcome. You notice how you, you try to say, well, you know, there's less of this now than there used to be. Or you try to say evidence that the cops are more casual about murdering black men than white men It doesn't really hold up if you look at the scholarly studies. The good news is never welcome. With a certain kind of person, if you try to say things got better, they tense. They want to prove that that you're wrong. And you might say it's it's a wariness, but it's also because, in a way, they want it to be bad. And it's not because it lines their pockets. It's not this poverty pimp thing. It's that they feel good in being the person who tells you that things are bad all the time. That's a way of feeling like you matter. That's a human thing. But we Black Americans OD on that. And it means that good news is unfortunate to a lot of people. And that's what makes this into the kind of fanatical movement. And we've got to move past that. You have to polish the crown when you've earned it. And we often don't want to do that. Why do you think there's so much resistance to that? You know, I honestly think that some people wouldn't know who they were if they couldn't exaggerate their victimhood. God, I hate to say that. And I don't mean George Floyd. I don't mean a young black man growing up in a community where the cops are chasing him around. You're saying time. it's tied up in identity. It's identity, especially for middle class black people. And I think we always have to remember we are not the minority. You know, it's not rare to be a middle class black person. I think that it gives you a sense of, of power, of significance. It gives you a sense that getting through your life is a kind of a victory. All of that is normal. This is a normal human type. But it it holds us back because it makes us negative. 
It makes us, it's not constructive and it's just not real. I think we're encouraged to lie to ourselves. We're encouraged to lie to one another. And so then you listen to somebody say, well, black people shouldn't have to take standardized tests. But isn't that very close to saying that we aren't as bright as other people? To turn away from that because it feels good to say that standardized tests are racist, it's not healthy. I don't think that we're healthy. And I think that we need to start looking at things more squarely and encouraging white people to do it with us. We tell white people to be our allies by lying with us. No, no, I I don't think it's right. I want to help real people who need help. And instead, we police language and we pretend that it's not fair to be made to take a standardized test. You know? Yeah, those are a couple of the areas that it's funny. They come from different sides, but they're kind of entwined now. One is the the victimization part of it when it comes to racism, like with police brutality and that sort of thing, which, of course, some of that is real. And there's a, a history and legacy of that, which for me is why real. it stings more than it probably should for most people because of the history of it. Like I always say, for many people, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story in and of itself. But for many black people, it's just another chapter in a long book. Exactly. You know, and that's to true. Me, that's one of. That's one of the reasons. But the other part of it is a little harder for me to wrap my head around it. And you described it as the infantilization of the culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're a professor, so I'm sure you see a lot of this up close or everything. But I don't understand where that comes from. I can't relate to that, you know, um, Professor, where when you talk about standardized tests or the saying that black people aren't equipped because of racism to study, to to excel in physics or, or STEM is somehow white or that sort of thing. I don't understand. This is not how I came up at all. This I can't wrap my head around that. I don't get it. And defining whiteness in those terms doesn't make sense to me either. Can you unpack some of that? Yeah, I um, this does not work for me either, because what a lot of this elect ideology says is that being precise is white. Showing up on time is white. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, and, and, and what it means, like I always think, well, what's black? And if you really boil it all down, if, if you listen to what these people are saying, I swear that what they think black is, is two things. One, you're communal instead of individualistic. But the thing is what human groups aren't. If you think about the whole globe, if you've ever taken an anthropology class, who are the people who on some level aren't communal? That's not black. That's human. If you want to make an argument that a few a few Europeans aren't communal, okay, but most of the world is communal. That's not what black is. So what's specifically black? And I am not kidding when I say that I think a certain kind of person thinks that what's black is to move your body to a charismatic rhythm. What black is, is jamming. That's what we're supposed to do. (laughs) And what else would it be? And, you know, jamming's nice, but it won't invent the iPhone and it won't really invent much of anything. We're just supposed to be charismatically related to an interesting rhythm and play basketball, which is kind of what that is. And I don't think that that is dignified. I think that a certain kind of white person gets a real kick out of beats and rhythm and energy and watching black people relate to those things. I feel diminished by the idea that that's what real blackness is and that everything else is just some stuff that white people do. And it's also just mendacious, it's a lie. It's not true. If you've got an iPhone in your pocket, well, that was created in white ways. All of us jamming and not taking tests and being holistic and communal, 
It's not going to invent the iPhone. So, you know, I, I don't get it either. Or the fact that if it is white, then it has to be bad. It's wrong because white people did bad things. So therefore, precision must be wrong because precision sent slave ships across the ocean, et cetera. You know, that that doesn't work. That's like saying, you know, we're not going to build roads because Rome had roads. Ancient Rome had roads. That's stupid. But precision is white. Oh, yeah, that it was on the walls of the Smithsonian, the African-American History Museum. Frankly, a white woman had this chart about what's white and what's black. And one of the white things was being precise and being on time and raising your hand. Really? Yep. And a white woman wrote this. And that's not racist. That's what woke racism is. Now, people complained and they pulled it down. But there was a bright shining moment. And I just thought, no, this doesn't work. Not for me. Also, I mean, some of that, of course, is ridiculous. I'm not sure how many people actually subscribe to that. But I think people are subscribing to this abstract notion of whiteness rather than, as I said, uh, behavior of things that people do. But yeah notion of whiteness in and of itself is a bad thing. Yeah. And the idea is that whiteness is something to be battled. And whiteness includes what we think of as standards. And that just worries me. And so physics is a kind of whiteness. And physics needs to open up to more intuitive notions, which is shorthand for physics without the hard math. That's actually been Mm -hmm. argued by a very intelligent Black woman who was a physicist herself, but the idea being that physics needs to open up. Music theory, the science of music, how you put harmonies together, that's a white thing, apparently. It's racist. And so we need to reconceive how we think of as music, because the things that Beethoven did, well, those principles were created by racism and whiteness. And you notice how that gets into, okay, African beats and jamming, that's what music is apparently supposed to be, not you don't do Beethoven's seventh. These are weird notions, and yet we're being encouraged to think of them as mainstream, as something people didn't think of before they weren't listening to. But because George Floyd was murdered in such a terrible way, now we need to get down to the truth. I don't see it as truth. And so I started writing woke racism a few months after George Floyd's murder, and it was a murder, when I thought, wow, people are being thrown out of windows in a way based on not not agreeing with this ideology that used to be something that one person at the faculty meeting thought one person at the PTA meeting would mention and everybody would think they were kind of odd and maybe walk away thinking a little bit. That's what those people used to be. All of a sudden they became mainstream in June of 2020. And I thought this doesn't work. And somebody black needs to say something who's neither too young nor too old right now. And I figured I'm one of those people. And so that's why I wrote the book. And do you view uh, this issue of how racism is categorized when you say woke racism. So wokeness has ascribed itself to other ideologies, I guess, is 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 what you're saying. You don't talk about that necessarily, but you deal with it in terms of racism. So how is that governing uh, the way that people are dealing with other things? Like, is it guiding most of our discussions about all cultural issues is this yeah. type of of re, of religious moralizing about every single issue as opposed to just being able to discuss issues like i think if you go down the line of the cultural issues i'm trying to think of is there anything that you can disagree with the orthodoxy and not be considered a heretic <laughs> and the answer is no this ideology does not allow for different points of view and the reason is because 
if you have this idea that battling power differentials must be everything, then you're no more open to new ways of looking at things than somebody who's battling pedophilia. Now, there's no such thing as a conversation where you say, well, maybe some kinds of pedophilia are okay. We all just put our hands up. No, that's exactly Mm -hmm. the way these kinds of people think about battling power. If you're not battling power, we do not need to have a conversation at all. You are in favor of white supremacy because you're not interested in decentering whiteness. That's what these people think. One cue that somebody is one of these people is how often they use the word power. That's what they're thinking about, that they don't like that certain people have more power over others and that they're disproportionately white. Power, power, power. Mm -hmm. And so you can't break bread. And so I'm going to speak carefully because I don't. I'm not into dissing what people do because I know that a great deal that I do is not top notch either. There was recently a cultural production by a black artist that got a lot of play in a very prominent venue. I'll just leave it there. And I worried that it wouldn't be as good as people were saying that because of the nature of our moment, everybody of influence would say that it was wonderful whether it was or not. And I attended it. And by any standard, there are many amazing Black art forms. It's why I follow so many of them. This was not Mm -hmm. one of them. This was not this was not a victory. And it was painfully clear, including to Black people who were taking it in, which was also painfully clear. You would never know it from the media because the media just decided that There was no such thing as submitting this piece of work to judgment because the person was black. That's not healthy. The idea is that there's supposed to be an honest discussion of what in our artistic culture is good, what doesn't go over so well. That's what we've always done. But in this case, the idea was because this person looks like you and me, it's genius. You have to go to blogs and you have to have personal emails. You have to talk to actual people who make this art to get the truth. I perceived the truth and I thought I I couldn't be crazy. And it turned out that I wasn't. I will never write about it. I will never reveal (laughs) who this was, but that has become endemic over the past two years. Why can't we be submitted to standards? But that's because of this ideology. We're decentering whiteness. Therefore, anything we do is perfect unless we question this whole ideology and then we're black white supremacists. By we, I mean me. That's the situation that we're in. How did critical race theory become such a player (laughs) on this stage? If you could just go over critical race theory from your point of view, but how it's how it's come to be such a this player, kind of a a ping pong ball that is used a lot, (laughs) as I see, which many times I think the whole argument is about something else. And that's kind of. uh, Yeah. yeah. A lot of um, the elect kind of person has been moved by certain legal articles that aren't read beyond that community, but legal articles that are all about changing our sense of what justice is on the Mm -hmm. basis of the fact that white people have had all the chips. And these are interesting arguments. They kind of push the envelope. Yeah, but, you know, there's something to it. Oh, yeah, they're not wrong. No, they're not crazy. But that basic (laughs) view that it's we must change what we think of as justice bleeds into anything a black person does has to be understood as part of our story, part of our narrative. And so you don't have to have read the original articles to take in that kind of idea. And a lot of that idea that 
Everything is about power differentials. White people are oppressors. Black people are sufferers. Everything that a Black person does has to be seen through a different lens. That sort of thing is now part of how teachers are taught to teach school. This is a little corner of things that a lot of people have no reason to know about. What happens in education schools? Now, you think that in education schools, people are carefully taught how to teach people how to read and to do math. If you talk to somebody who spends a couple of years in one of those, you'll find that that's not what they're taught. You're taught how to be a good leftist radical and how to teach your kids about that. Nobody puts it that way, but critical race theory directly affected that. And so it means that that sort of thing is taught in a great many schools. Now, it's not that the legal documents are being taught to seven-year-olds. How would you do that? It's the general ideology, which we're now also calling critical race theory. The language on this is a mess because a lot of people seem to really think that if you say, what's this CRT doing in the class? That you're taking some 10-year-old and taking them through this intricate legal art. Nobody means that. It's the ideology that's come from it, which says that a central aspect of what you teach a child while they're still vulnerable is about power and the way it corrupts, and especially if the power is held by white people. Anybody mm -hmm. who says that that's not being taught in classrooms is either lying or they don't know. And I'm not sure what the proportion between those two is, but it's a real, it's a real issue. But we can't talk about it properly because critical race theory is also some 40-year-old legal articles. And also the elect think that it's right that kids are taught that. It's not that kids shouldn't be taught about racism and slavery, of course, mm -hmm. but it's that particular way of looking at it. I'm looking at, you know, at, on my desk, I'm looking at a picture of one of my kids now. You take a kid and you teach that person that white people don't like them and that their essence is that of uh, of you know somebody who's possibly going to be suffering at the hands of these people named William and Caleb. That is a lousy way to teach somebody. It's not necessary. That is what some people object to. That's where the CRT comes in. But people are going to say that I'm making this up. And it's not the, and it's not that this person, this is my daughter, she's going to learn about racism and slavery. Yeah, I hope so. I wouldn't want her to be in a school that didn't teach it. But I don't want a school to teach her that her essence, because she's not white, is that of a victim. No, that's not what you teach people when they're 10 years old. And that is definitely happening nationwide. So that's the CRT rant that I Right. Have. Part of what where I I have an agreement with some of that. I also I don't like children being taught to be activists. I feel like that's a whole mm -hmm. different arena. But I do think context is important. Many times context isn't taught, you know. Uh slavery is just really presented as a thing. Yeah, it was around, then it was gone. Then there's the civil rights thing. And people have no idea <laughs> it was gone. You know, yeah, how hostile the uh, environment was to be black in America. It was a hostile environment. Mm -hmm. You know, you couldn't go to certain places, you know, even in department stores or whatever. You were just treated differently. And, and not only in the South. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And these weren't what are called microaggressions today. These were macroaggressions. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And there was there was a a real overt hostility to the fact that you were black. James Baldwin speaks about this eloquently in many different ways, but it also comes across in the manner in which he speaks, you know, because it just, it that uh, treatment kind of lives through his throat almost, through his voice and how he speaks, even with with Dr. King and his whole nonviolent approach was to combat that hostility as much as the issues. Like, he wasn't nonviolent because 
he thought that's the best way to get voting rights. He was nonviolent because other people were violent, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he was nonviolent, you know, and not that it was clever. It's because people were outwardly violent. And I think a lot of a lot of how life actually existed isn't taught, John, from my point. I have a completely different take on this that doesn't exist on either of these sides, that I feel context isn't given to kids for a lot of this. And we're not being honest on both sides of this. It's it's an overreach, I feel, to tell teach kids to be activists, but it's also an undue teaching to not say, here's what it was really like. It's not comfortable, but sorry, this is how people were treated. And, you know, some of that has bled into other areas, but that's just how it was, you know. And we yeah. Just, it, it, because it's painful, it's hard for 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 I think for many white people to acknowledge that 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 actually uh, happened. Oh yeah, you know because people want to believe that they're good people, and and many people are, but they can still be involved in a bad thing. Like as you say, many people who are part of this um, type of let's call it a movement, you know, can be very very good people, very intelligent, well meaning, but they can get caught up in a nasty type of acting out i think sometimes you know you know i i agree with everything you're saying and i can't be glib about this yet because i haven't fitted in but you know one of my kids is 10 and she's learned a little bit about slavery in school but i noticed and she's got wonderful teachers but you know she's one of many kids they've got a lot of teaching to do pandemic has kind of diluted things i noticed that she hadn't really learned what a slave was like how terrible Mm -hmm. it was so i supplemented it i said do you realize what it was to be a slave that this is something that happened to real people including your own ancestors and i think people don't know for example it's one thing to see a black and white picture of black people lining up to vote for the first time in mississippi it's another thing to know that at that same time in say 1962 my older relatives told me that at John Wanamaker's, the big fancy department store in Philadelphia, you couldn't try on clothes. White people could, black people couldn't. And that's in Philadelphia, not somewhere in Alabama. 1986, I didn't get a summer job and it was overtly because I was black. That late. I don't consider that to have defined my life, but these are the sorts of things that happen. So yeah, these these are real things. And I think those things do need to be taught in school. I don't think Mm -hmm. they need to be taught as identity. And so the question is where you draw the line. But I always think to myself, I was always able to try things on in a store. I want to acknowledge that. I just get itchy when somebody makes it seem like today, you know, the kind of person who says, I experience racism every day. And I think to myself, unless you live in a really bad neighborhood, no, you don't. Not in the way that my grandparents did or even my parents did. You shouldn't say that because you dishonor what they went through. That doesn't mean that today right. is perfect. There is a such thing as a microaggression, but no, not every day. It was my right. aunts who went through it every day. You know, that's, I just, I feel we, we have to allow that things change. Yes. And part of what the change is too, and I understand this, and this is where I may have a disagreement with, you know, many people too, or, but this is to me is the truth is that it wasn't so much that, like, people have to understand, why were blacks discriminated against, you know? Why were people treated a certain way? And the this is what I mean by context. Much of the thinking is that blacks were subhuman. You know, they were not, they did not deserve to be in the same place with whites because they weren't the same. Not the same species, you know? yeah, right. Not the same. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to understand that that was the orthodoxy that, this is what I mean by ordinary people. We're not talking about KKK. We're talking about what was ingrained in the DNA of 
of casual thinking. Yeah. Oh, there's a good phrase. The DNA of casual thinking. <laughs> Let's keep it. <laughs> yes. Was this subhuman thing that wasn't necessarily a hostile thought. No. You know? No. And, and that's, that's what people have to understand. And so that is the thing that I feel the anti-racist movement really wants to fight against, but has become this other thing. Because that's on the side where I say, yes, all that is something that needed to be broken up. And like, I'll give you an example. In, in my profession as a writer, I've, I've worked my whole career to hopefully provide opportunities for other black writers, people of color, and that kind of stuff, because I saw the way that the opinions that the industry had about a black writer and that opinion was that they were not as good as a white writer. This opinion was just there. Nobody told it to them or something. That's that was that's the opinion. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a black writer, you couldn't work on a white show. But if you're a white writer, of course you could work on a black show. Of course. Black writers weren't good enough for that. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they were black writers. That's just the way it was. You know, I felt that's wrong. And I, I could see that that was... It was ingrained, you know, if I challenged somebody on it, they would probably deny it. Then I'd be like, well, motherfucker, why aren't there any black writers right. on these shows? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I did the action of hiring black writers, right. you know, right. and breaking that up. Now, today, the, the industry doesn't have the same opinion they had 25 years ago. But to me, like breaking, I, so this is where I'm on the side of, of people that are interested in how people operate too, as well as that, because it can make a difference in hiring that, you know, that when there's a general opinion about something, people can be unconsciously just treated a certain way. Mm -hmm. No, the, these things are real. And um, without, and without any malice is what I mean. Oh, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's, it's right. quote unquote, nice people. And that has to be battled. And to be honest, I just think that a lot of that was already happening before the spring of 2020. And we've been told that we really need to step it up. And where I get worried is when the idea is, OK, we're only going to hire black people for a while and we're going to change <laughs> what we think of as qualifications. We're just only going to hire black. Right. People. That never goes the right way. We've seen, you know, that's. And so where do you draw the line? And I just worry that we're going right. too far on the other side. It's the overreach, which is uh, where anti-racism overtook non-racism. There you go. We should keep that. Yeah, it's the, the idea that anti-racism is something where you completely turn upside down what you thought of as why people do things, why people are better at some things than others, what qualifications are. The idea being, I think, just to show that you know that racism is around. But that's not enough. You're showing it. But you also show that, you know, racism is around by making it's going to be corny, but making sure to assess everybody according to the content of their character to the extent that you can. And I am all for adjusting standards for socioeconomic reasons. I'm all for affirmative action if you've come up hard. But for me, that's race neutral and it will drag in more black people than white people usually. But the idea that you change standards just because of melanin because, say, you and me are in more danger of dying like George Floyd than someone else, if that's true. I don't think I don't No, No, that's not why you change standards. I, I think that that's a very thin reason for changing standards. And I think a lot of our anti-racists would say, well, because the cops don't like them, we have to change the standards as a kind of compensation. But they're doing that for themselves. I don't think they're doing that necessarily for us. And it just it worries me. John, do you see this? Uh the cultural moment that we're having now is more of a momentary movement, or do you feel this is a real cultural shift? I mean, if it's a religion, religions tend to stick around for a long time. 
Your boy Jesus has been here for t- 2,000 years, you know. Sticking power. I think um, <laughs> the excesses of it are going to recede. I wasn't sure about this six months ago, but I think in 2020, it was very common for somebody to say the wrong thing and get fired. Mm-hmm. In 2021, it's been somebody says what's perceived as the wrong thing. Somebody tries to fire them and they resist. I'm seeing more and more of that. Now, if somebody does something truly egregious, they should be fired. That that happens, mm-hmm. um, including with the N-word. But in cases where it's clear that they didn't do anything wrong, especially if what they did is something they did and nobody even batted an eye two years ago, I think the culture is beginning to push back against that excess. And I hope my book played a small part in that because I just thought that, you know, okay, racial reckoning, but not based on what these hyper-woke critical race theory sorts of people think, because the world they want is one that I don't think would be very coherent. And I think the world they want is one where what black people do is dance. And I just don't, I, I'm not, I'm not with it. I'm just not with it. I don't know if that's what they want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I think white genuflection is, is closer to probably what the goal is. Yeah. Uh, Definitely that. Although you might be able to call that dance, maybe in some uh, in a way, yeah. John, I really appreciate you you being on uh, today. I feel like this is a, a, the beginning of a conversation on this issue that would uh, be great if if we started having um, more complex issues on these things. That that would make me happy, you know. And like I said, it's agreeing or disagreeing to me is the irrelevant part, but it's the exploring. I think it would be great if more people. Uh, got into that sort of thing. Are you hopeful about a better discourse on these issues or are you kind of cynical about it right now? Where are you? I think academia is lost. Hmm. I think that academia has just turned upside down in a way that won't change. But um, I think that society is pushing back against these excesses. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can get back to working on race issues, which we do need to work on. Mm-hmm. There are poor black people, especially who need help. Yeah. But without Kabuki being so much of the part of it, that's what I worry about. Mm-hmm. And so I want us to do real things, not just show one another that we know that racism exists, mm-hmm. which I think is a very different thing. And lastly, why do you think um, class is not brought up enough in these conversations? You just mentioned it as a thing. But why is class overlooked so much in these conversations about uh, people's lives being improved? That's an American issue. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't talk about class very much. And Mm -hmm. so and also we want to talk about race as being one thing. And so we want to pretend that there aren't very different experiences depending on what class that we are. We do need to talk about that more Mm -hmm. without being afraid that if you are representing the black middle class or even the black affluent class, that you look down on other black people. Sure. And so, yeah, we do need to work on that particular issue. There's kind of a class guilt as much as a racial guilt. Very much, especially if you're doing pretty well. I think some of this is your way of showing that you don't look down on people who haven't been as fortunate. But sometimes it can devolve into being symbolic. Yeah. Guys, the book is Woke Racism. I encourage you to read it. Uh, Even if it makes, for some of you, it might make you mad. You'd be yelling, how can he say that? But I'm telling you, there's there's, uh, so many gems in here uh, that are, are, are really cool. And, you know, John, as a lover of language, I appreciate you, uh, 
putting your pen to these books over the years and just giving us your thoughts. And thanks for being in black on the air. Larry, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. John McWhorter, everybody. See you next week.